Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz drummer and educator Michael Carvin. Over the course of our conversation, he spoke about how his father taught him the greatest lessons in life, like waiting to learn how to play the drums properly before doing it, and it paid off. By the age of 12, he was playing professionally, winning five consecutive Texas Rudimentary Championships, then moving on to be the staff drummer for Motown Records, playing with Freddie Hubbard, and gigging with the finest cats and jazz on the planet, like Dizzy Gillespie, Dexter Gordon, Jackie McLean, Hank Jones, Illinois Jacquette, Faroa Standers, Bobby Hutcherson, James Moody, Hampton Hawes, and so many others, and he has great stories about all of them. There is plenty of wisdom and laughter that he imparted, and this is a man that really loves jazz and being alive. So please, enjoy this interview, my friend. Thank you very much for taking some time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to do it, believe me. Right on. So I'm going to go ahead and hop in here, and I'm going to ask you, first of all, what has been going on with you lately? Well, we just received, uh, in November, we received four stars from Downbeat Magazine for our new record, Flash Forward, on Motima Records. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and it's also all going to Michael Carvin School of Drumming. That's on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday when I'm in town, and we're also finishing up with the documentary, No Excuses. Is there a release date on that? or? A, a no, no, we, uh, we're shooting for probably spring of 2016. From what's been going on lately, let's go back to the beginning of your life, and you were born and raised in Houston, Texas, correct? Yes. Give me an idea of what it was like to be raised in Houston, and, and what really fostered a love of jazz for you? Well, for me, uh, this was, I was born in 1944, so we was, uh, Texas was dealing with, and part of the United States was dealing with segregation. Now, having said that, I never experienced it on a personal level. You know, of course I knew it existed, but see, a lot of people didn't really understand the state of Texas. It was just different. I mean, I really enjoyed it, to be honest with you, because I had all black educators, and and that was great to grow up in uh, with a sense of that type of pride, and also know that people had excelled on higher levels, maybe than was being advertised or spoke about. My father was a great drummer and an entrepreneur, so I grew up kind of in an entrepreneur family. My mother was a housewife because during that time. One parent could provide, you know, and my father had a house, a uh, new house built. He kept him a new car every year, and uh, my uncle was Don Roby that owned Peacock Records. That's how, why I started in the studio first instead of the nightclubs. And now what got me into jazz, well, I came from the rhythm and, and blues state. You, you know the shuffle and the backbeat coming out of the state of Texas. But a lot of the people, when they would come to Houston because they couldn't stay at the, the hotel that my parents had, uh, a, a fairly nice-sized house, the kids, my two brothers and I, we would be deposited to our grandparents. And, you know, uh, Illinois, Jacquette, and a lot of these guys were was, was sleeping out of beds. And Louis Armstrong now, speaking of Illinois, Jacquette, Illinois, Jacquette, and Russell, uh, a jacket, that's his brother that played trumpet and on that cop and uh Eddie Cleanhead Benson is is our cousin. Well, the Jacket brothers went to school. The Jacket brothers on that car went to school with my father, Phyllis Wheatley High School in Fifth Ward. Yeah. And uh so I I always heard it. 
I always heard it. I I saw my first band. I was about 12 years old, and it was uh, Michael Bolivar on alto tenor, uh, Willie Taylor on piano, and Arthur Hunter on bass. And we played pretty much the Harvard Silver and the Cannonball Adelaide sound. But as a matter of fact, when that record came out uh, with Cannonball Adelaide, Nancy Wilson, that first record was Save Your Love for Me and Would It Be Live Sleeping in, in the Palm of Your Hand, Never, Never Ever Will I Marry and all of that. We played that whole book. I, uh, we were playing that book when I was 13 years old. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah, but, but see, none of the jazz guys came through because – uh, of the laws that was uh, really enforced by the Texas Rangers and the Baptist Church because Texas for a while was a dry state. Yeah. And even when I left Texas in 63, you still could not buy a drink over the bar. It was bring your own, own brown bag, so to speak. Yeah. But it was great, though, man. I mean, like... Uh, uh, Jazz when 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 I was growing up, what they called jazz in Texas was uh uh Ray Charles would come through on uh Christmas Eve or something and do a big Christmas show and uh uh Cannonball was very big in 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 Texas because they played the kind of music that you could dance to. Yeah. You know. And Horace Silver was a hit all although he never came through. Because Harvard Silver played that same kind of music, you could dance to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so that's um, I had really a great, a great time growing up. I, I mean, I really did. Yes, I knew uh, uh, segregation and all of that. Uh, we could uh, use the language racism, but I never personally or anyone in my immediate family personally experienced experienced of course we was aware of the the tragedy with uh the three little ones in Little Rock, Arkansas and the things that was going on in Mississippi and Alabama. That was the guy I came through Kansas once and I was a, a cab driver. I was riding with a, a cab driver and he said, Man, he said, How are you? And I, I I think at that time I was about sixty eight, um sixty seven or something. He said, Where are you from? I said Houston, Texas. He said, "Oh yeah." He said, "Well, well, what age were you when when you stopped started picking cotton?" I said, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. He said, "Well, you from Texas, right?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "And you grew up in segregation?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "But there's no cotton in Texas, man." Yeah. I'm going, "Well, well, it isn't. It's beef, and it's horses, and it's oil, and it's seafood, and it's vegetables." There's no cotton in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't. I mean, you know, it's it's there's no cotton in Texas. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's wild, man. <laughs> so it's a whole the, lot of oil and a whole lot of beef. Yeah, my absolutely. grandpa, Grandpa Ben, had an oil well. My, my grandfather had a a a, a, a oil well, but uh, they kept uh, unfortunate with the laws. He could only pump three months out of Nanny, so it would it would take so much to, to even get a bucket full when you let it set like that and, and the city would come and put a lock on it. But my grandfather had an oil well. Wow. Yes he did, yeah. Wow. That's yeah, cool. Did yeah, Ben Hall. So um I really had a good time growing up as a kid. I really did. 
Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like music was your tapestry. Did you always dream about growing up and being a musician, or were there other aspirations? No, I only I knew what I wanted to be when I was six years old. So it, it, it was very clear to me. And you obviously took that baton well. It, it, when you started at twelve, you won the first of five consecutive Texas Rudimentary Championships. What was yeah, that? yeah, you know. Well, well, that was fantastic. See, I hated my father. From say, I started playing drums at six. From six years old to, to twelve, <laughs> Joe, I hated my father. I hated him. I hated him. I could have killed him because he would leave a set of drums set up in the house in the den because the guys would always come over and have jam sessions and all of that. Shoeberry, uh, when he would come through Houston, he would come by and jam with my father's band, and my father wouldn't let me play the drums. And I hated him. And he and he told me, I said, well, Dada, why won't you let me play your drums? He said, Michael, you don't know how to play drums. He said, now, you stay on your practice pad. You practice your rudiments. And when you learn how to play drums, I'll buy you a set of drums. But you don't know how, how to play drums. When I, I hated him until I won my first rudimental championship. When I won my first rudimental championship, then I thanked him because then and only then did I realize that he had given me the proper discipline that I needed. Had my father listened to me, I probably wouldn't be playing drums now at 70 years old. Wow. Because I would have been a banger, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. And if he would have listened to me, I would have never touched a practice pad or studied uh, 26 rudiments. If you let a child start playing a set of drums, how are you going to turn them around and get them to set hours and hours at a practice pad? Yeah. Studying right, left, left. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Okay. But, but luckily, he was the father and I was the child. <laughs> That's great. But I hated him until I was 12 years old and after that I thanked him for the rest of my life. As a matter of fact, my father passed away when I was 35 and I was speaking to my beautiful mom about two years ago. I just, uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Joe, take, take this. Jazz at Lincoln, now this is still my father taking care of me. Jazz at Lincoln Center, the guy, uh, uh, Stephen Hawkins, hired me, he said, Mr. Carmen, we would like for you to do the 26 rudiments and be the pilot for our uh, uh, jazz academy that they just started about two years ago at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And I said, well, well, great. What would you like for me to do? He said, we would like for you to play and demonstrate in five-minute uh, uh, segments the 26 rudiments. Wow. So I did it. Dig this. They paid me. $10,000 to pay the 26 rudiments. Do you believe this? So I called my mother. I say, Mother dear, you never believe this. She say, what did you do this time, Michael? I say, they just paid me $10,000 to play the 26 rudiments. I wish that I was alive. I could thank him. Is that something? Wow. That's cool, man. That is totally cool. Is that something? Oh, man. That is awesome. So it still goes back to that initial 26 when I was six years old and not allowed to play the drum because I know for a fact I would have been a banger because I've, I've, I've seen it over the years. All of the guys who Cameron's gave them stuff, they didn't, uh, very, I would say uh, 10%. 
actually uh, 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 embellish that early gift. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild, man. That's, that's, that's a great story. But um, another thing that I did, I would sit, I was so mad at my father. I would sit on the floor in front of the set. Like my my, my father worked in, in Jimmy Lunster's band and Louis, and Louis Armstrong band before I was born. So he used to uh, sometime go out on the road with his own own band, and he would he 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 always had two or three sets of drums. So he left a set of drums set up in in the uh, music room. So I wouldn't touch him because I was a good child. But I would sit on the floor in front of the bass drum, and I visualized what I was going to play when my time came to play. And and I, 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 I would take paper and I would draw three circles and I would count the strokes that I would play on the snare drum, on the, the, the mounted time and on the floor time. And I would sing the sound. That's why I've always had a sound. I've always yeah. had, had my own sound ever since I, I started playing drums because I had this sound in my head what I was going to sound like. And what I did, I actually wrote part of my first uh, concept of a drum book because I would say like da 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 and as I would make a sound I would tap the paper in that circle yeah meaning it would be maybe five strokes on the, uh, the snare drum and, and, and three strokes on the mounted tom and six strokes on the floor tom you know and, and then I would draw another three circles and I would figure out stuff I used to work on cross sticking in my mind while sitting in front of the set because I practice, uh, 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 that's what I have my students to do sometimes. Stand in front of the drums and see and visualize what your right. hands are doing. Because when you sit behind the set a lot, it's too much, it's, it's too big. That was another thing that I learned by not being allowed to, to bang. Yeah. It's amazing how stuff happens, Joe, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. It is, it really is. We go from your beginnings, your drumming, and then you go and you spend your staff drummer at Motown, and you do some television work on the West Coast. What were those years like for you? I came out of Vietnam. I was 21, and I, my dream, my father sent me to L.A. to be a staff drummer, because a studio drummer, because that's something he always wanted to be. I kind of lived that dream for him. So I was doing a lot of studio work uh, out in L.A., so... Eddie Kahn, a bass player, had just left Max Roach, and he came to town because his mother oh, was had, had had gotten sick. So I met Eddie Kahn, and, and I told him if he would switch to electric bass, I could turn him on to some sessions, which he did. So his friend was Coleridge Perkinson that was the piano player with Max band when he was with Max. So Coleridge Perkinson got the contract. He was the MD for the Barbara McNabb TV show. Yeah. So Coleridge was living in New York writing all of the music. So he made Eddie Kahn the contractor. Yeah. So Eddie Kahn hired me as the drummer. Yeah. So Coleridge would, would fly to L.A. from New York on Tuesday, and we would uh, uh, rehearse the big man on Tuesday and Wednesday, and we would record the show on Thursday, and he would fly out on the uh, uh, the red eye that Thursday night. I thought that was so cool, man. Yeah, I thought that, I mean, he's like, yeah, yeah, and I'm catching a midnight flight from L.A. back to New York. I was like, wow. Yeah. This guy's crazy. <laughs> and and, and oh, yeah. plus he had worked with Max Roach. You know, so 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 
that's how that got started. Okay, so then I was working with a group called Retta Hughes and Tennyson Stevenson out of Chicago. Yeah. So somebody heard me, and they had Motown to get in touch with me. So Motown called me and asked me if if, if I would come to Detroit to audition for the uh, the drum seat. So I said, well, yeah. So I went to Detroit. I was a great sight reader. I still am. And I sat down and, and, and I sight read the book. But I've, I've worked so hard on my hands. I've, I've always wanted to have fast hands, which I have now and I've always had. So when uh, when I first got there, I was, so, uh, so um, Harvey Fuqua, that is the MD, that, the, that was the MD there, uh, Harvey say, look, man, that's great. I mean, I can tell that you have really worked hard to uh, uh, develop your technique, and you have great technique. He said, but we don't need that here. Yeah. What what we need here is for you to sit in this pocket. Yeah. Now, let's try it again, and we just need you to sit in this pocket. See, because all Motown drum fields are two beats that start on the end of three and it ends on the downbeat of one. It's one, two, three, ba da da da. Yeah. That's it. And that is so beautiful because it's, it's more musical and it keeps the music from rushing. You will never hear a Motown song where a drummer plays do da 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 do 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 boom, doom, doom. Because that's a possibility that that can rush. So they'll say one, two, three, ba ba da 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 da. Da, 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 da. So I learned a lot there, man. I learned how to play where the music is energetic, but the tempo doesn't move. How to move uh, the feeling from quarter notes to eighth notes to sixteenth notes to create the illusion of speed, but it's not moving. It's standing still. Yeah. And and that's how that came about. And I stayed with them until they moved to L.A. And when they moved to L.A., I moved to San Francisco. And I lived in San Francisco for two years. I, I, I moved to San Francisco uh, to prepare to come to New York because I never lived in a city. Houston and L.A. is the same thing. It right. just doesn't have oil. But as yeah. full as steers and horses it's in heat and sand, it's the same thing. Yeah. And Houston yeah. doesn't have mountains. That's, that's the only difference. So I moved to San Francisco, and and um, and I just moved there to practice. I, I, uh, I had chosen the band that I was going to join. Eddie Kahn had told me, he said, well, look, man, if you're going to go to New York, go there with a, a, a band that's hot and force everybody to come to meet you. He say, just don't go to New York because it'll take you too long to meet everybody. I said, okay, Eddie. And Eddie taught me how to play fast because I couldn't play play fast because I never played fast. And he had worked with Max Roach. So I said, well, Eddie, teach me how to play play fast because I don't know how to play fast. And by him being a bass player, he can learn how to play fast because he's not going to slow down for me. So I taught him funk. And he taught me speed, uh, uh, playing jazz, uh, uh, those, those up tempos. I moved to San Francisco, and I said, well, I'm just going to work on it. So Freddie Hubbard had just released Red Clay. Yeah. And and when I heard that, dot, 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 I said, I can play that. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'll say, I've been playing that since I was 12 years old. You know, and I say, as a matter of fact, I can play it better than the drummer that's 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 playing it because Lenny had never played R and B. He was a jazz drummer trying to play R and B, so therefore he had a thin sound. No disrespect to the great drummer Lenny White, but jazz drumming is a thin sound. R and B drumming is a thicker sound. I'm not talking volume. I'm talking sound. Yeah. So that encouraged me. I said, well, they are playing as fast as I thought, you know. And so it was that book, Red Clay, uh, Intrepid Fox, that book. Yeah. So Freddie was hot as a firecracker. I'd say, that's my ticket to New York. So every time Freddie would come to the boat and that was a jazz club in San Francisco before the Keystone Corner opened, it was called the boat and it was owned by uh, Delano Dean. And what I did, I lived right around the corner from it. So Delano Dean had a great jazz catalog. So one day I, 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 I came around there, and, and I could see through the window. He was cleaning up, so I knocked on the door, and he opened the door. And I say, Delano, I want to go to New York, and I don't have a jazz vocabulary. You have all of these artists that I've never heard of, like I've never heard of, of, of Gratian Moncourt III. Uh, uh, that great record, uh, Evolution, with uh, that tune tune on it, the coast of great, great composition. So Delano said, well, yeah, man, you can come around. I said, well, look, I'll clean your club for free if you would just play to let, let me listen, because he had a great sound system. And I said, and if you would just pick groups that I haven't heard, because I had heard of the main guys, la, 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 but I, I wanted to know the other people that I would encounter in New York that I could possibly work with, you know. So I would come in there and I would empty the ashtrays and clean the glasses and sweep the floor and wash the uh, the glasses and set up the club. And he appreciated that, but I appreciated him, and that's how I built my jazz vocabulary. So he said, well, look, man, he said, why don't you work with Bobby Hutchison? I said, well, I don't really want no gig because my rent was $75 a month. I sold my car because I lived, I was living in the city. And uh, I just wanted to practice and focus on Freddie, joining Freddie. So I transcribed uh, uh, the whole record, and uh, I had the book together. So Delano Dean said, well, look, man, Bobby is, is, is working in here next week, and he don't have a drummer. Play the gig with him for me. I say, okay, Delano. So I played with Bobby. I fell in love with him. So uh, shortly after that, Delano said, look, man, you need to be heard. He said, if if I can bring a guy in for the New Year's Eve gig with you and Bobby Hutchinson, who would you want to play with? I said, oh, man, bring Jackie McLean. Because I would heard Jackie McLean on that Gracian Moncourt, the third record. And so he said, Jackie? I said, yeah. He said, okay. So he worked the deal out, so he brought Jackie. Now, I was lucky because that same weekend, that, that uh, New Year's Eve weekend, Herbie was at the Ice Palace in San Francisco with the NYDC band. And uh, Freddie was at the Great American uh, Music Hall in San Francisco with the Red Clay Band. So we went from 10 to 4. They just played their little hour concerts and came on over to hang out with Bobby because Bobby had made a lot of records with Herbie and Freddie. And I didn't realize that connection, but Delano did. So Herbie and Freddie fed in. So I'm playing, and I said, okay. 
And I didn't say nothing to Freddie because I didn't feel it was the, uh, the right time. And Jackie was in the band. So Jackie told me, he said, look, man, if you ever come to New York, here's my phone number. Call me. You got the gig. I told Jackie, thank you, man. Jackie wasn't as hot as Freddie. I needed somebody hot so everybody would come to, to meet me. So I worked out the deal, and I got the gig with Fred, and I moved to New York in 1973. He flew me in from San Francisco. I got off the plane. I went right into the Vanguard, and that was that. So you get to New York City, and you start playing with Dizzy Gillespie. you got Dexter Gordon, Hank Jones, Hampton Hawes. The list goes on and on. What, and you're a teacher. What did these experiences being around these kinds of cats teach you about just not only music but life? How did that flow? You were just it's such a creative cradle of jazz. What was that like? I was never hired. I chose every band that I played with. I wasn't a drummer for her. I have never been a drummer for her. I came from a, a, a band leader, father, and my father taught me, he said, Michael, play with guys that are going to allow you to grow in the style that you want to grow in. That's why I chose to work with certain guys. Now, the reason why I chose Freddie, that was to kick it in. Okay. The reason why I chose Jackie McLean is because Jackie built young drummers. Whoever worked with Jackie in New York is the next guy. Okay. Yeah. Jackie McLean built young drummers. I came to uh, New York with that California experience. So when, uh, when Jackie called me, I'm there and I'm saying, Yes, sir, uh, Jackie, uh, uh, let me have your book. Jackie say, what book? You know, I'm coming with that L.A. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, it, it did. We we playing, and I said, well, Jackie, what you would want me to play on this film? He said, look, man, stop bothering me. <laughs> you the drummer. Play the drums, man. Why you keep bothering me? <laughs> you know, but. But the, no, that's what Jackie told me. Yeah, he said, "Stop bothering me, man, and play the drums." See, because see, because Al Foster came through Jackie. Yeah, Jack DeJohnette came through Jackie. Tony Williams came through Jackie. Lenny White came through Jackie. Michael Carvin came through Jackie. Yeah. See, because Jackie is the first band leader I've ever worked with that allowed me to get me. You go figure you out, and you can do it on my bandstand every night. Yeah. But that's what our Blakey did for him. Yeah. Because Jackie came from a drama. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to work with Jackie, because he understood the drums. Yeah. And he forced me to be me. And he encouraged me to be me. So when I left Jackie... I say, well, now I want to get the Pharaoh because I wanted to feel what Train felt like. Train died when I was in Vietnam, and I was just crazy about Train. I wanted to feel what Train felt like or get some kind of idea of what he felt like. So I joined Pharaoh's band. And what I learned from Pharaoh was how to be at peace with what I am and what I think my music is about and not what somebody else thinks it's about. What I think my music is about. 
And that was the one lesson from Pharaoh. I saved Dizzy for last because I say after I work with Dizzy, I'm not going to be a side man again. I, I joined Dizzy's band when I was 40. I haven't been a side man since I was 40. And the only thing I wanted from Dizzy, I wanted to play with a guy that invented a style of music that influenced the language of that type of music around the world. I wanted to play with an innovator. Yeah. And and to play with, and none of these guys talk, mind you. None of them. No rehearsal, man. No rehearsal. You say you want to play with me, that means one thing. You know my book. Because I have nothing to say to you yeah. about that. So Dizzy, uh, uh, I waited until, see, that was something I always wanted uh, to tell Dizzy in, uh, ever since I was about 25 around there. And I, 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 I'd been in the band for about six months, and I got to know him. Uh, one night the opportunity uh, uh, happened. So we were in Munich, Munich, Germany, working at the Dummelsville Jazz Club in Munich. This was 1979. It was about 4 o'clock in the morning. And Dizzy knocked on my door. And I opened up the door. And he wanted to talk about John Pozo. And when these guys come and they want to talk, you just sit down and listen. Regardless of what time it is or what you do, it's not about what you do. It's what they want to do. So I just, he, he sat down and I let him solo, man. And he talked about China Pozo and how China Pozo influenced them in, in Cuba and, and how he brought mixed uh, or heard this concept to mix the, the, the Cuban with the, the, the bebop and all of that. And I said, well, John, I call him John, John Burks Gillespie. I said, well, John, now that we are talking about China Pozo in Cuba, I said, I have something that I've always wanted to, to tell you, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way. And he said, well, say it. I said, you have never played a night in Tunisia. He said, what? <laughs> I said, John, you have never played a night in Tunisia. I said, you played a night in Cuba. Because the six-day clave that Chano Pozo is playing in, in Tunisia, uh, in, in, in night in Tunisia, is not the six-day clave of Tunisia. That's the clave of Cuba. Yeah. And as a drummer, you can't, you have to be careful with what kind of language you'll be using if it's not matching the proper language of the drumming world. Yeah. So once I said that, his ears was like elephant ears. He said, okay. So I sang to him the rhythm of Tunisia as the drummers would play. And it elongates the melody. See, see, because the Cuban music is very quick, not fast, quick. Why? Because that's the same way they dance. Yeah. The African beats are more relaxed and subtle because that's the way that they dance. So the African rhythm is, is more like so I elongated I made it a, a two bar phrase and then the melody starts so it'll be and 
instead of ding 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 dickity dickity ding 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 dickity ding. That's the Cuban six. Ding 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 dickity woman the bang ding ding. So it's nervous. It's nervous. It's nervous. That that's why they play la 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 la. But we play ba ba boom day boom back it to go to back it to pop it to go to pop it to ba dum da da to back it to do do. Do you have that? Well, I'll send you my latest CD if you don't have it because that arrangement on Night in Tunisia is the one that Dizzy played from the time I I showed him that. Oh no, I didn't show him anything. From the time we discussed that, yeah, until the day he died, that was the uh, arrangement. I just wanted to correct that language. We discussed that. I didn't show him anything. Yeah, uh, you know, and I was very proud. And that's the way. Every time I played Night in Tunisia, I played that way because it is Tunisia. And then you can really hear how beautiful the melody is. But the tempo is still one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. When when it gets to the swing part. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this: You've had you've been on over 250 albums. You've been very prolific in your long jazz career. Has there been an award that you got that just kind of surprised you? That was just kind of like, wow, that's cool. Not that it was any better than any others, but a recognition where you thought, man, that's uh, that's something else. No, no, no. I haven't reached that level yet. Yeah, and I hope I don't. Because yeah. then it's over. Yeah. Yeah, well, man. Let me let me switch gears here a little bit as a teacher. You're teaching the great Matt Cain and you're a great teacher. What do you what's your philosophy? What do you try to teach your students? How to discover themselves. To respect and own your own fingerprint. This is what I tell them. I say, look, guys, here's a theory that I believe in. I don't know if you believe in it or not, but I believe in it. And the theory is this. The FBI can lift your fingerprint off a glass setting on the, of, of, of the counter of, uh, on the bar, right? Mm-hmm. And they can track you down anywhere on the face of this earth, right? So if you buy into that, which I buy into it 1,000%, then that means you're special. That means you're so special that nobody else on the face of this earth has your fingerprint. So from this day on, live your life that way. Yeah. And that's what I teach you. Because that's the way I live my life. I'm very special. I live inside of my mother, uh, so did you and all of us, other humans. And, and our fingerprints is not the same as our mom's, Joe. Come on, man. Something happening. Yeah. yeah. Joe, something is going on, man. Oh, yeah. Amen. Something is going on, man. So let's buy into that. Yeah. Let's, let's become our fingerprint. Let's honor that. And let's govern ourselves accordingly to that. Yeah. And you will excel. Because now we ain't trying to be somebody else. Yeah. We ain't trying to look like nobody else. We ain't trying to speak like nobody else. We ain't trying to play like nobody else. We ain't trying to act like nobody else. Because we are special ourselves. Yeah. We are the special chosen ones. Because nobody else 
have our finger print. <laughs> yep. That everybody in this life has an influence on you. You've had countless influences. If you look back over your life, it's very, very rich and full of music. Who has taught you the most? My father. He taught me the greatest lesson. When your time come, do it. Not until. He taught me the greatest lesson that I could ever learn in life. You can't do it until you can do it, man. Relax. (laughs) Although I couldn't understand that from six years old to 12 years old with all them drums in the house, and I I hated him. I hated him. I hated it. That was a hard lesson, man. I'll tell you, man. I hated my father until I won that first rudimental championship, and I realized I wasn't better than the other kids, but I realized what he had taught me. If you're going to do something, master it, study it, understand it inside out, be able to step forth and pull it off in front of total strangers and under the utmost pressure. When, 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 and that's the greatest lesson that I've ever learned in my life. Yeah. It's not about what I wanted to do. It was about what I couldn't do at that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. So you, <laughs> you, you played in a lot of sets. You've been, you've played in front of a lot of people. When yeah. you think back over all the gigs that you've played, is there is there a, a set of shows or a show where you're like, man, there was something, some level you went to that was nirvana? You you just went there? No, because you know, um, not not really. Because see, it's 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 it can't be one. I mean, I understand what you're saying. You uh, see see what you're speaking about. Is when the magic stepped in the music. Yeah. And that doesn't happen all the time like you and I know. And that has happened uh, not with everybody, but with uh, uh, all of my musical marriages. Let's use that language. So uh, my musical marriages with Jackie, Pharaoh, and um, Dizzy. Yeah. Now, in my musical marriages, yeah, man. But uh, but they were all different though, so I can't say it was that night with Dizzy in 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 the south uh, the south of France. I can't say it was that night with Jackie. Or I can't say it was that night with Pharaoh in California at the uh, the Ash Grove when we recorded live uh, uh, that record recorded live uh, Elevation. Uh, the, 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 were they all wonderful? Were, were there several nights when I would get back to the hotel room and I couldn't sleep for three days? Yes. But which one was the best? They they were all the same because it was a beautiful awakening and reward for me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because cause, yeah. cause, cause that, the, the, that happened with my new band uh, every now and then, and, and like with the guys in my band, well, the ladies and gentlemen, because I have Yayoi Kawa on piano and Jansen Sinko uh, on bass and Keith Loftus on tenor, and like I always tell them, 
do not discuss music with me. Don't, don't, don't discuss music in the dressing room. I don't give a damn if it was good or bad. Don't discuss it. And if you want to discuss it among yourself, leave the dressing room. You can't do it in my presence because I don't discuss music. I play music. And sometimes they'll forget because we'll get lucky. You know, we finished the gig one night, and Jansen looked at me on the other bench, and he said, Carmen, are you sure the set is over? I said, yeah, man. I looked at my watch. He said, man, it feels like we've been playing for 15 minutes. I said, what did I tell you? He said, yeah, but I said, what did I tell you? He said, okay. Don't don't discuss it with me yeah, because sure. you, you're going to shut it down. Yeah. I believe that if we discuss it, we'll run it away. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is. I don't know why it happened when it happened. I'm just thankful it does, and that's that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I don't want to know, Joe. I don't. I don't want. I don't want a lot of information, man. I, I don't want it. Yeah, I hear you. I don't want it, man. I don't want to understand it. I don't want to figure it out. I don't want to. I don't want to. Whatever it is, I'm just thankful that it come to me every night and then. <laughs> <laughs> So let me ask you this. As a practitioner and an observer of something that we love in this country called jazz, why do you love jazz? I just like it because it makes me feel good. It really makes me feel good, man. Oh, yeah. It makes me feel good. And it introduced me to a lot of wonderful and hilarious people. I'm talking about there. Jazz, <laughs> jazz, <laughs> jazz masters, all of them. Could do uh, 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 sixty minutes uh, of stand up, man. <laughs> yeah. No, no, man. They're some funny characters. No, 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 no. They're some funny characters. Some of them don't know it, but they'd be funny, man. They be, <laughs> you know, you know, they'd be funny. I'm, I'm sitting and I'm, 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 I'm hanging out with Dizzy, and sometimes he'll just we'll be talking about something, and all of a sudden. This could just go to another space, you know, where 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 he would just be like in a he would be like five or six years old, man. I mean, I could see it big because I understand that that space, you know, and it just be different. It's not what he's saying or what he's doing. It's just that energy. Yeah. When when uh, when they could make that humble shift, where where we might be thinking, oh yeah, but they all. You know, uh, just like Jackie loved ice cream, man, and and like we were we were uh, we was in Copenhagen because the ice cream there is very good. I don't eat sweets, but the, he said it's very good. And we were working on Antiquity when when we was working on the duet record, and uh, he said, "Oh, oh, like a little one." He stopped playing. He said, "Oh, oh, oh, Michael, let's go get some ice cream, man." And I was like, "Okay." But what I heard, you scream, we scream, we all scream, I scream. I mean, that's, that's, that's where my head went. I'm serious, Joe. I'm sad. I mean, you know, I mean, I didn't say it, but that's where my head, because he became that guy. Yeah. He became that guy. I hear dee 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 dee. I mean, he be, he became that guy, man. And we went and got some ice cream, and he sat there and ate the shit, and and he was like, wow, yeah. He said, Michael, you you don't want any ice cream? I, uh, I said, no. He said, okay. He said, well, do, do you want anything? I said, man, I'm just enjoying this. Because, 
Jack McLean doesn't want ice cream. I mean, Jack McLean doesn't rush off from a rehearsal to have ice cream. Not Jack McLean and all this shit. He can play it. He was bird protege. I mean, he, he doesn't need ice cream. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just beautiful, man, to, like, be privileged to experience that. And then when we would play, I could hear that guy when he played something. I could hear and that's when I dubbed him the Scooter. I used to call him Scooter. He said, he said, Carvin, he called me, me Carvin. He said, Carvin, why, why you call me Scooter? I said, because you're a little one. He said, yeah, I am. He said, you can see that, huh? I said, yeah. You're just a little guy on your Scooter having fun, man. I mean, it's just having a D9 alto saxophone. Yeah. But you just on your little Scooter running up the streets of New York with your friends. Yeah. And and, and that's the way he, he played. That's why Jackie played so happy all the time. I don't care what he played. It. Just be happy and real, uh, I'll use the language, frisky. Yeah. He has that frisky kind of. That's why I dug playing with him because it was frisky. It was like real frisky. Man, Michael, that I think that's the perfect way to... Put, a, put our kind of our period on this interview, man. I appreciate you opening up your world. I got a great insight. I I appreciate your time. It was it was beautiful, man. Man, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Michael for opening up his world with Neon Jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.